focus our attention once again in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And this morning we will learn much about the chosen servant of the Lord, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. The world can be divided into two groups, those who know the truth and those who are deceived, those who love the truth and those that hate it, those who have been reconciled to God through Christ and those whose father is the devil, those whose sins have been forgiven and those whose sins have not be given, been, been forgiven, and those who live for the glory of God and those who live for themselves. Those who are citizens of the kingdom of light and those who are citizens of the kingdom of darkness. The contrasting nature of these two groups is graphically illustrated in this morning's text, where we learn much about the servanthood of Christ. For indeed, according to Matthew 20 and verse 28, we read that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to Give his life a ransom for many. In Matthew 12, chapter 12, we have learned in the first 14 verses much about the one group, the group who are deceived. Those who live in willing bondage to the kingdom of darkness, unwittingly worshiping their father, the devil. And they are characterized here as the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite the hypocrites, those who try to impress man with a veneer of spirituality, those who endeavor to follow systems of oppressive legalism, that implacable enemy of grace, where they adhere to rigid systems of man-made standards of external spirituality, which offers only the illusion of spirituality. Now, Jesus has just endured the venomous attacks of this group. He has just exposed their wickedness and their hypocrisy. Now they are plotting to kill the Lord Jesus, our blessed Savior, and yet he continues to lovingly serve them and others that are following after him, even knowing full well many of their murderous intentions. And so here we see the contrast of darkness versus the glorious light of Christ, the chosen servant of the Lord. Having said that, follow along as we begin in verse 15 through verse 21, our text this morning. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together in verse 14 against him as to show as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, verse 15, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to make him known, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. As we study the life of Christ, I am struck with the stark contrast between good and evil 
between love and hate, between truth and deception. Jesus comes to do the Father's will, while the wicked will do the will of their father, the devil. Jesus comes to seek and to save that which is lost. And yet the wicked continue to seek and destroy the lost and the oppressed, as well as the one who came to save them. Likewise, I'm struck with the humiliation of Christ versus who he really is in his glorified state, the glorified Christ that we will someday see at his second coming. Jesus, in fact, is the epitome of humility, as we read in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 8 or in verse 5 through verse 8, we read Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, obviously, we can learn much about humility, about servanthood from Jesus' example, a virtue that has fallen on hard times, I believe, even in contemporary evangelical circles. It has been my observation that most Christians come to church to be served, not to serve. It has been my observation that many times The lack of service is proven by the fact that usually about 20 percent of the people do all the work, about 20 percent of the people do all of the giving. The rest of the people just kind of show up occasionally like spectators, but they're not really involved in serving, not necessarily even just in the church, but even serving outside the church. And then many times this is proven by people's angry reaction when people don't respond to them the way that they want If they had been consumed with service, they wouldn't be worrying about all of that. But we see something very different with Jesus. In fact, in verse 18, the father describes him as my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. The concept of well pleasing here is the idea in the original language of to take pleasure in something or to take delight in it. We read that, for example, about Christ and the father's pleasure in Christ at his baptism. Remember, in Matthew 317, God, the father looks down and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Also at the transfiguration, when Christ pulls back his his flesh and the Lord in heaven, God, the father says the same thing. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You know, friends, it is an incredible thought to me. That God can take pleasure in any of us. And I would ask you to ask yourself, does God take pleasure in you? Does he delight in you? Does he look at your life and say, I am well pleased with this servant of mine? And of course, this forces us to ask the question, what are those characteristics, those virtues that the incarnate Christ so perfectly displayed? That would cause the father to say, this is my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Because these are the same virtues that should characterize our lives. Let me give you three general points of reference that I believe will help us to understand the text before us this morning. Three virtues that should characterize the life of every servant of Christ. And certainly characterize the life of Jesus. Number one, 
humble submission. Number two, selfless compassion. And number three, resolute proclamation. First, we look at humble submission. Now, think of this. Despite the mounting opposition that is coming towards Jesus, Jesus just quietly withdraws himself from the fray, from the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, when you think about this, you know, he could have instantly destroyed them. (laughs) He could have called 10,000 angels. He, he, He could have, with a word, turned them into toads. He could have done all kinds of things. But he did not do that. He he just simply withdraws himself because, dear friends, he came as a servant to accomplish the father's will. And that will at this point is to seek and to save that which was lost. And I think of the inconceivable humility for the Lord of hosts to quietly endure such wickedness. It's unfathomable to me. And yet he did. He endured the blasphemous rejection from creatures that he himself had created to bring him glory. And certainly we can glean from this that such humble submission flows from the wellspring of a heart of love and a heart that is utterly dedicated to doing the will of the father. So Jesus came to do the father's will, not his own, even if it cost him his life, which it soon would. And certainly Every true servant will manifest the same type of humble submission to the Father's will, which, dear friends, is found right here in the Word of God. You see, a true servant serves Him, not self. A true servant is consumed with what the Father would have him do or her do, not what he or she would want to do on their own. So true servanthood is power. Under control. Now think of the contrast. This same Jesus that withdrew himself from his foes on that day will someday be avenged. And may I remind you of that in Revelation 19, verse 11, where we read of his second coming. John sees the vision that the Spirit of God gives him. And we read there, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And in verse 15, it goes on to read, and from his mouth, in other words, the mouth of Jesus comes a sharp sword so that with it, he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty. Now, that's a very different Jesus that is coming someday. But. At his first coming, this was not the will of the father. And as the chosen servant, faithful and true, Jesus had a singular focus, and that was to do the will of the father. As he says in John 434, he came to accomplish his meaning, the father's work. And it's for this reason, dear friends, that the father's soul is well pleased with his son. Now, you ask, well, I wonder what the Father's will is for me. Well, again, it's found in the Word of God, but can I give you four basic pillars of the will of God? They all begin with S. First of all, it is God's will that you be saved, that you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and experience the miracle of of the new birth and be transformed and therefore be put on the pathway of sanctification. But secondly, you are to be sanctified. In other words, you just... You are to set yourself apart from the world, to be separate from the world and live for the glory of God. 
And thirdly, you are to be submissive, submissive to the will of the Father, to the will of the Son, to the will of the Spirit that we read about in Scripture. And fourthly, you are to be selfless in your love. And oh my, we can preach it, but it's so hard to live. Only then will our lives bring delight to our Heavenly Father. I'm reminded of that great hymn that we've sung so many times and we sang it this morning. Blessed assurance. Fanny Crosby wrote it. Perfect submission, the one verse says. All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. Well, not only was the Lord Jesus Christ that chosen servant, Filled with humble submission, but secondly, with selfless compassion. Notice in the middle of verse 15, we read that many followed him and he healed them all. Now, folks, what a contrast this was to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were now licking their wounds. Jesus had just absolutely annihilated them with his love and his precise theology, with his infinite mind. These egomaniacs are now seeking revenge. They're plotting to kill him. And yet Jesus, the innocent victim of their abuse, does not become preoccupied with some counterattack. He does not become consumed with revenge. That is unimportant here. Justice will eventually prevail. But what he's consumed with is being that beloved servant who will bring delight to his father's soul. By coming along and tending to those who are in need of his infinite compassion. This is selfless compassion. And how often we as servants get more consumed with defending our reputation or somehow counterattacking some criticism or, or finding our own place where we can make sure that we've got our little territory and we lose sight of the more important issues of showing compassion for others. Intending to people in need. Now, it's very important for you to understand that many of the people that the Lord now healed, many of these people now that he is tenderly loving, don't even believe in him. They're still following him. They're not really sure who he is. And yet the Lord is showing compassion to them. Again, think of the stark contrast between the Pharisees and the Lord Jesus. The Pharisees come along and, and they impose burdens upon them that they could not bear. And they would not even lift a finger to, to, to help them. And then they would condemn the people for their failures. How would you like to live in that type of oppression? And yet the Lord Jesus comes along and, say, comes along and says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And the incarnate Christ stoops to show compassion to the oppressed. Those that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, continued to despise. The Pharisees being the false shepherds, are wolves in sheep's clothing, as we've learned. The Lord says that they disguise themselves as shepherds and they would entice the sheep to somehow trust them. And then when they got them close to them, they would devour them like ravenous wolves. And yet the good shepherd is filled with selfless compassion. That's why he said to them, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Now, imagine the scene here, dear friends. There has just been a, a riveting con confrontation 
between the Pharisees and Jesus, a real battle. And of course, people are always running around to, to, to see the, the, the next show, so to speak. All right. They didn't go to the cinemas at this time where they went is wherever Jesus went to see the next miracle or the next confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees. All right. And that's just what has happened here. And Jesus just, shall we say, verbally and theologically dissects them. And then he just turns and walks away. And he selflessly tends to the sheep that are in need of a shepherd. But notice, he says something interesting in verse 16. He says that he warned them not to make him known in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, and then he goes on to quote a prophecy from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Now, this is fascinating. We need to pause here for a moment. We need to ask the question, why would Jesus quote this particular text that was written some 700 years ago at this particular time? Well, the answer is simply this. You see, the people who were following him had wrong expectations of who Jesus was and who the Messiah was to really be. You see... The multitudes and even many of the religious leaders couldn't understand why, if Jesus is the Messiah, as he says he is, then why is he not destroying the Romans? Where's the kingdom? Where's all of the glory of the kingdom? What's going on here? Where's the conquering king? All we see is this abused, humiliated preacher slash miracle worker. And he's more concerned with the down and the out than those who have clout. What's going on here? Now, knowing their confusion, Jesus directs their attention to Isaiah's prophecy that would underscore the anticipated Messiah's true agenda, namely to be humbly submissive to the Father's will, to be filled with selfless compassion, and to have a resolute proclamation of the truth, even to the Gentiles. So, Jesus quotes, now catch this, the first of four messianic servant songs that you find in Isaiah. Now, we're not going to take time to go through all of them, but I want you to understand the context here. And by the way, as a footnote, this is an amazing testimony to the inspiration and, and, the, and the infallibility and the authority of Scripture. Because what we see in these four servant songs out of Isaiah are detailed prophecies describing the beloved servant, the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation. And the descriptions were written some 700 years prior to where we're at here in the text here today. The first of those four songs are the ones that uh, we find in, in uh, here in Matthew chapter 12. And he quotes out of um, out of Isaiah 42, one through four. But let me give you a sampling of some of the other three. The other one is found in Isaiah 49, 1 through 13. Let me just give you, for example, a sample of this in verse 3 of that particular text in Isaiah 49. The Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the servant Messiah, speaks of his commission from the Father. And here's what he says. And he, the Father, said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. And then later on in verse 6, we read, I will also make you a light of the nations. So that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, 
to the despised one. In other words, God, the father to the son. He says this to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. And here's what he says. Kings shall see and arise. Princes shall also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Capital Y, referring to Christ. And in the third of the four servant songs sung by the Messiah, we have literally a soliloquy here describing his perfect obedience to the Father's will. It's found in Isaiah 54 through 11. Let me give you a sample here in verses 6 and 7. He says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting for the Lord. God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And the fourth song is found in Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13 through Isaiah 53 and verse 12. And here's where the father summarizes the son's eventual humiliation and exaltation as though it had already occurred. He says, for example, in Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And then later on in chapter 53 and verse four, in that same song, we read something that you're all familiar with. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Again, an amazing prophecy that we now can look back and see was fulfilled at the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Prophecies describing our precious Savior. Now, the chosen servant that brought delight to the soul of the Father is living consistently with what was prophesied. His first coming was not one where he was going to somehow lead a great revolt against Rome. But rather, he was going to do the Father's will and he was going to seek and to save and to show compassion to the lost, to those that are diseased and oppressed, even the multitudes that are following him. So he is simply reminding them here by quoting out of Isaiah that his agenda was to restore, not to destroy. His agenda was to love, not to kill. This was a time of humiliation, not exaltation. Therefore, he warns them, don't make me known. Verse 16, don't 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 go around telling everybody. In other words, what he's saying is, is just keep what has happened to yourselves. Don't please don't go around just publicizing all these miracles. I don't want to further inflame the passions of of many of the Jews who want to exalt me as their political hero as their new military champion, now is not the time. My ministry is spiritual and I am here to fulfill the divine mission that was prophesied even in Isaiah. So that's why Jesus would quote this at that time. But may I draw you back to the servant's selfless compassion? Notice in verse 20, he says, a battered reed he will not break off. 
and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Friends, this is incredible imagery here, powerful imagery that really has profound implications in our lives. I want you to understand this, that here again we see that the beloved servant did not come to to galvanize the strong to revolution, but to tenderly serve the weak, to draw them to himself. And that's why he says a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Let me explain this to you. This is so precious. It has been a passage that I have found great comfort in over the years. The word reed here refers to a a literally a flowering stalk of of any of several species of of tall uh, aquatic um, grasses. And here it's used metaphorically to describe something that that is weak, something that that is now broken. And perhaps it is even a reference to uh, to these same reeds that the shepherds would use to to make a woodwind instrument. And he also talks about a smoldering wick, which would be uh, a string. You know what a wick is. You see them in a candle and they would put them in their little lamps filled with olive oil and they would light them. And it would be a string of flax. And in this case, a smoldering wick is one that has been on fire, but now it's out. And so it's almost extinguished, smoldering with an obnoxious odor just before it disappears forever. So what is the Lord saying? Well, he's saying that I am a tender servant. And this speaks of the intimate concern of the servant of the Lord. And dear friends, we have much to learn here because Here we see our gentle Savior, meek and mild. Think of this. Those of us who have been or currently are broken reeds. What encouragement there is to those who are weak. To those who are frail. To those who who are without strength. And can no longer stand for some reason. Some broken reed that has been discarded like... The reed and the woodwind instrument that's now broken and thrown away has been discarded by some perhaps misfortune or, or thrown away by some poor choice that you've made. You're bruised and you're battered by life. Oh, dear friend, Jesus sees your brokenness. Others might walk over that broken reed and, and, and never even see it, but Jesus sees it. He sees our frailty. He sees our weakness. He, he, he sees our desperation. And that's why we need to first come to Him in faith. And for those of you that might be sitting within the sound of my voice and you're saying to yourself, you know, I, I just really question what good I am to anyone. I, as I look within my heart, I, I, I really feel like I have nothing to offer. I don't really have any strength. I, I collapse at every temptation that comes along. My sins are ever before me. There are certain besetting sins that I can't seem to to get over. My life has not played any kind of a melody for years. What use am I to God? And dear friends, the answer is, and please hear this. The Lord sees you as the battered reed and he's not going to break you off. Oh, dear friends, Jesus sees our brokenness. He sees our frailty. He sees our weakness. And He does not discard us. He does not ignore us. We never escape the gaze of the Savior. 
because with omniscient eyes, he sees our frailty and the word of God tells us that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Aren't you glad that is true? And with omnipotent power and infinite love, he stoops down and he picks up that battered and that broken reed and he restores it to usefulness. And he rescues, he rescues the, the bruised and the broken and he mends us and places us once again within, shall we say, the grand pipe organ of his church that will cause us to sound forth in absolute, perfectly clear tones so that we can harmonize with all of the rest of the saints as we play the music of the redeemed, those who have been broken reeds themselves. Like the woman caught in adultery whom Jesus forgave and said, go your way and sin no more. Christ will not throw you away. And we look at the smoldering wick. And there are those I'm sure that are in this room. I know for a fact there are where you feel like your life no longer gives any light. The, fl the flame has been blown out, perhaps by disease or some some tragedy or some misfortune. Sometimes we feel like we're getting old and we're in the way. We're unwanted, we're a burden to others. For some, you wonder where all of your life has gone and you're sitting there thinking, you know, my dreams never came true and my heart aches with disappointment. I look at my life and it's been a failure. Perhaps you hate yourself because of some secret sin that haunts you, leaves you trembling in the midst of the night. You've convinced yourself that your life is like the noxious odor of smoldering flax that nobody really wants to be around. You feel as though you're an outcast. No one would really like me if they really knew me. And oh, dear friends, may I say to you with utmost confidence that Jesus is there to rekindle that light. He sees that smoldering wick and he will fan it back into flame that it might radiate his glory. And then others will say, and I've seen this so often before, my, what is that light that shines brighter than all of the rest? And others then say, ah, that once was that smoldering flax whose spark was gone out. But the beloved one rushed to its rescue and, and, and fanned the spark back into a flame and then the flame into a torch and then the torch into a furnace. And now that furnace is ablaze with the glory of God. And you can see it in that person's life, the praise and the worship and the service, all because the master tenderly stooped down and cared and that wick which once smoldered with noxious fumes has now set the whole world ablaze for the glory of God. Dear friends, he will not extinguish a smoldering wick. But there's much more that we must learn here. This marvelous model of divine servanthood. That even as Jesus tenderly attends to broken reeds and smoldering wicks, dear friends, so too must we. I was informed yesterday of a little boy named Charlie. And I understand that little Charlie is dying of a terminal illness. And they just removed part of his lung. 
And his father has now abandoned the mother and doesn't even come to the hospital. Dear friends, there is a broken reed in a smoldering wick. These are the ones that Jesus tends to. And He tends to them through us. This week I was summoned to Chicago for dear friends. Many of you know of them. Nancy and I went along with Jana and Rusty to conduct the funeral of a young lady, 25 years of age, a brittle diabetic who just went to be with the Lord. Another battered reed and smoldering wick that now is shining gloriously. And the mom and the dad and the family are broken reeds right now and smoldering wicks. But oh, what a joy it is to watch what God is doing in their life. Friends, may I ask you for a moment to look around, not literally, but in your mind's eye, look around even in this room. Can you see the broken reeds? Can you see the smoldering wicks? Even within your own church family. I can tell by some of the tears that I see in your eyes that there are several in this room. Indeed, there are many. And the tragedy of it all is that most of the time we are so busy with our Christian lives that we never see it. We never tend to it. And therefore, we never serve As Christ served and therefore we forfeit the blessings that is ours because when the father looks at us, he cannot fully say, my soul is well pleased with this servant. When was the last time you carefully studied the eyes of those that come into this room? When was the last time, husbands, you studied the eyes of your wife to see if she was a broken reed or a smoldering wick or wives, your husband? Or parents, your children. When was the last time you actively and aggressively and intently prayed that God would show you a broken reed that you could come along to restore? You know, many times they're hard to see. The broken reed gets lost in everything else and you really have to look for it, don't you? And many times the Smoldering wick is not something that is pleasing to be around. That life can sometimes be obnoxious. But, oh, dear friends, even as the Savior would run over to that smoldering wick and gently cup his hands around it to preserve it, to keep the wind from blowing it out, and then to gently fan the flames with the soft winds of prayer and tender love and words of encouragement and deeds of kindness, And dedicated involvement until finally that wick becomes a flame once again. That's what servanthood is all about. You see, friends, ministry is all about others, not about you. And too often we find ourselves pushing our own agenda, seeking the praise of men, meddling into other people's affairs, bickering over ridiculous issues that are absolutely, eternally insignificant. When there are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks all around us, and we're on some silly crusade to convert people to some particular, what, uh, translation of the Bible. 
or we're trying to get somebody to come to our fellowship group or come to our Sunday school class or or you know what I'm saying, how easy it is to get distracted from the glorious purposes of serving. Even as our Savior served. I rejoice in those times when God in his grace mended my broken reed and rekindled my flame. And there have been many times in my life. You know, friends, there's no greater joy than coming alongside someone else who has collapsed under the weight of some great difficulty in life and help restore them to spiritual health. Proverbs 19, verse 17, we read, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. In Job 30, and verse 25, we read, Job saying, Have I not wept for him who was in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Friends, does this characterize your life? And in Matthew 25, the Father blesses us when we feed the hungry, and give drink to the thirsty, and give aid to the and shelter to strangers and clothe to those who are in need of clothing. And when we visit the sick and the imprisoned and on it goes. You see, this is selfless compassion. And this is at the very heart of servanthood. For this is what we see at the very heart of Jesus. The exact opposite of the Pharisees. Well, along with humble submission and selfless compassion... There is one final virtue that delighted the Father's heart, and that is resolute proclamation. Verse 18, we read, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved one in whom I am well, my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. It's important for you to understand this text. We never want to go through any words of Scripture without gleaning all that the Lord has for us. The word servant here is not the typical term that is used for a servant, but rather it is one that denotes a special intimacy, often translated son or even child. And it's used even in secular Greek to describe a servant that was so trusted and so loved that he was treated like a son. You see, this is a reference, of course, to the Son of God, whom God the Father chose to be his beloved servant, in whom his soul is well pleased. And he says, I will put my spirit upon him. Well, you say, my, I don't understand. I, I thought he was God, very God. Well, indeed, he was. Certainly, Jesus, unlike any other person in history, was even conceived in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit, which confirmed his divine nature. But, dear friends, at his baptism, we read that the Spirit of God descended upon him as a dove in Matthew 3. And that empowered his human nature. He was God. He was also human. He was fully human. He was tempted in all ways, even as we are. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He got tired. He felt pain. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so he needed the power of the Holy Spirit. So according to Acts chapter 10, verse 38, we read that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And also in Luke 4, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. 
So with the empowering and anointing of the Holy Spirit, the chosen servant, verse 18, proclaims justice to the Gentiles. Now, keep in mind, this was absolutely infuriating to the self-righteous Jews. The thought that somehow their Messiah would focus any of his attention whatsoever on redeeming the Gentiles was absolutely blasphemous. In fact, in Acts 22, they cried out for his blood when he claimed that God had sent him to the Gentiles as well. In that text, we read that they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And it went on to say they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air. You see, these people were religious bigots, but this did not deter Jesus. He was resolute in his determination to do the Father's will. He had his face set like flint, as we read in Isaiah, to proclaim the truth even to the Gentiles, knowing that it would even take him eventually to a cross. But notice, although he was resolute, verse 19 It says that he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. What does this mean? Well, quarrel means to shout with or to shout out with antagonism. It means to express a difference in opinion with loud hostility. That's not what he would do. It says nor cry out, which means to shout out or to scream excitedly. You see. These were not the manners of the meek and the mild servant of the Lord. No yelling, no screaming, no bulging veins in the neck, no red face, no pounding some pulpit, no theatrics. You know, I tire of hearing preachers that scream at people. Folks, that's not the way the Lord preached. You know, they get the quivering voice and they go up and they go down. I mean, what is all of that about? That is just so silly. The Lord did not quarrel. He did not cry out. You hear all this gasping and rhythmic breathing and all of the silly theatrics that people put on. Jesus never did any of that. I remember a seminary professor teasing us one day. He said, men, when you have a weak point out to the side of your notes, put get louder. And that's usually what I think happens. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 17, the words of the wise are heard in quietness are heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. And Paul said in first Corinthians two, beginning in verse two, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So, dear friends, with a humble submission and a heart of selfless compassion, in a resolute determination to proclaim the transforming truth of the gospel, even to the battered reeds and the smoldering wicks, he comes along and as verses 20 and 21 tells us, he does it until he leads justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And I want to close this morning with an example of a broken reed and a smoldering wick who, like most of them, you've probably never heard of, and yet one that the Lord intimately loved and cared for, and also a Gentile like me and like you, and aren't you glad that he came also to the Gentiles? A Gentile that the Lord came to, even as he promised, to lead justice to victory. The man's name was Walter 
Mill. He was a pastor in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1558. And I want to tell you about the last days of this Gentile who knew Christ, a broken reed who the Lord soon restored and a smoldering wick that now is ablaze in the glory of heaven. This person, and I'm quoting from Fox's Book of Martyrs, in his younger years had traveled in, in Germany and on his return was installed as a pastor of the church of Lunan in Angus. But on an information of heresy in the time of Cardinal Beaton, he was forced to abandon his charge and abscond. But he was soon apprehended and committed to prison. Being interrogated by Sir Andrew Oliphant, whether he would recant his opinions, he answered in the negative, saying that he would sooner forfeit 10,000 lives than relinquish a particle of those heavenly principles he had received from the suffrages of his blessed, blessed Redeemer, end quote. Now, in consequence of this, sentence of condemnation was immediately passed on him, and he was conducted to prison in order for execution the following day. The steadfast believer in Christ was 82 years of age and exceedingly infirm. Whence it was supposed that he could scarcely be heard. However, when he was taken to the place of execution, he expressed his religious sentiments with such courage and at the same time composure of mind as astonished even his enemies, as soon as he was fastened to the stake and the faggots had been lit, he addressed the spectators as follows. Now, folks, I want you to hear this. The cause why I suffer this day is not for any crime, though I acknowledge myself a miserable sinner, but only for the defense of the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. And I praise God who hath called me by his mercy, to seal the truth with my life, which, as I received it from him, so I willingly and joyfully offer it up to his glory. Therefore, as you would escape eternal death, be no longer seduced by the lies of the seat of Antichrist, but depend solely on Jesus Christ and his mercy, that you may be delivered from condemnation. And then added that he trusted he should be the last who would suffer death in Scotland upon a religious account. Thus did this pious Christian cheerfully give up his life in defense of the truth of Christ's gospel, not doubting that he should be made partaker of his heavenly kingdom. Dear friends, I trust that you will examine your heart today. Do you have the heart of a servant? Ask yourself, do I humbly submit to the Father's will? Whatever is said in the Word, I willingly and joyfully submit to it. Is my life filled with selfless compassion? And do I have a resolute determination to proclaim the truth of the gospel even as my Savior? May I challenge you to this end for Jesus' sake. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the marvelous truths that we have been allowed to immerse ourselves in this day. 
I pray that you will cause them to resonate within our hearts. Lord, thank you for binding up our wounds. Thank you for fanning us into flames that can be used for your glory. And Lord, if there be one here today that knows nothing of the Savior that we exalt this morning, I pray that you will overwhelm them with such conviction that they will come running to the cross and allow you to restore them and to make them whole and to transform them that today they will be born again. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and for his glory. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.